Hello and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me as usual. Say hi, Darcy. Hey, guys. In case you didn't know, this is that crazy podcast where we talk about all kinds of weird, wild, and provocative stuff. Murder, mayhem, crime, witchcraft, all kinds of interesting jazz. How are you doing today, Dars? I'm doing okay. Um, Midweek, trying to get through the week as always. Same song, different day. Um, Yeah, that's about it. Are you drinking anything? I'm drinking water because it's Wednesday and I have class and work tomorrow and nothing is fun anymore. (laughs) <laughs> everything I don't want to be hyperbolic but Nothing's everything's fun. awful so I'm drinking water <laughs> so I had my very first lymphatic massage today have you ever had one of those no I've not had one of those it's a little bit crazy I'm not gonna lie it was a little strange yeah so what exactly did they do they just try and like move the lymph- lymphatic fluid around in your body um yes Essentially, what they do is you lay down on a table like you would for massage and they press, gently press and sort of push into any areas where you have lymph nodes. Okay. So that's your neck area, your Mm -hmm. underarm area, your groin Mm -hmm. area and your stomach area, which I didn't Mm -hmm. know you had lymph nodes in your stomach. You have, that's where your... Sorry if you'll allow me to nerd out. That's where your thoracic duct is. So, like, that's where everything collects and then travels up from, like, your gut and your intestines up to, like, your heart where it goes back into your veins. So weird. I had no idea. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. So I had one of those. It was about an hour long. And it was a very strange sort of a thing because I kind of have no feeling in certain areas. And so it was odd to have him massaging deeply in areas where I don't really have any feeling right now. So like you have, like you can feel like pressure, but you can't feel like the sensation like on your skin. Is that kind of how it is? Yeah. I mean, the the sensation is not necessarily all gone, but it is Mm -hmm. very um, minimized. Yeah. And so it's an odd thing. So is the lymphatic massage supposed to help with that? Yes. Okay. It's supposed to kind of create um, healing in your body. And evidently the compression garment that you wear has um, a good deal of pressure and it can actually cut off the circulation to your lymph nodes in your stomach and create more problems with healing. So I didn't know that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because it presses right on top of Are you going to do another one? Um, another garment? Uh, no, another, uh, lymphatic massage. I probably will. And the thing is the, the guy that did my massage is basically like, Hey, you know, yours looks great. You really don't need to wear this compression garment anymore. The doctors tell you you need to wear it for about six weeks. I've had, I'm about mm-hmm. four weeks out from my surgery. Okay. And I just feel like, Oh my gosh, I don't, should I listen to him? Should I listen to the doctor? Well, the thing is like, it's not. It's not hurting you to wear it, right? Like, Well, he's saying it's that it's pressing it... on the lymph nodes, and so it's delaying healing, and it's actually preventing the lymph node in that area from draining properly. Right, but is it going to delay the effect of your surgery if you take it off now, is the thing. You know what I mean? Like, 
that's a, he's he's saying it probably won't, but if your doctors are saying six weeks, you know what I mean? I might just stick with your doctors. Maybe. I don't know. Up to you. I, I haven't decided yet. So, yeah, <laughs> I have this article that I want to share before we get started on the main topic today, because I have a doozy of a topic for you that's going to cover off on a lot of things that you're interested in. So I, I know you haven't heard All of this right. case and you're you're going to love it. All so right. this <laughs> this article that I want to share first is actually an article that I found on. Um, it was originally posted on Reuters in the beginning of October, but the article is called Squirrel Stash of Winter Walnuts Causes Car Chaos. Okay. How's that for your alliteration? That is, that's a fun one. So squirreling away supplies for winter took a whole new meaning for a couple in the U.S. when they discovered a handful of walnuts and grass in their car. Holly Persnick was driving to a library in Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, when she noticed the car seemed strange. My wife called me from Northland Library and said that her car smelt like it was burning and was making a weird sound, Chris Persnick said <laughs> on a post that has since gone vi- uh, viral. Holly opened the hood to find an engine full of walnuts, neatly packed in grass, presumably stored there by squirrels over the weekend when the vehicle had been parked in the open. Chris wow. had to spend about an hour cleaning it out and over 200 walnuts and grass <laughs> <laughs> found under the hood. 200? Yes. So that's not oh a handful. Gosh. That's more than a handful. Yeah, that's that's many handfuls. And the couple seemed to take everything in stride, and they said there's definitely an angry squirrel wife right now wondering where all <laughs> the nuts went. <laughs> so Just foraging cute. for the winter. <laughs> Isn't that just the saddest thing you've ever heard? I mean, and they show a picture of it. It's It's kind of crazy and hilarious at the same time. Uh, how could you score that many squirrel away that many nuts in just a weekend? Yeah, that's two hundred. They nuts. were working hard. Did it <laughs> cause any like serious damage to their car? It doesn't sound like it sounds. Uh, and if okay. you look at it, it's just kind of on the top, and so it probably had a little bit of a burning smell. And they probably cleaned it yeah. out, and it's probably fine now. But I, that poor little squirrel, all Aww. of this work for naught. They work so hard, and now it's all gone. Yeah, poor little guy. So he's mm. out there somewhere crying about his lost nuts, and I feel so sad for him. I really do. Okay, story number two. This is the story of the murder of Jason Harper. And I am absolutely certain that Darcy probably hasn't heard of this story. I got a lot of the information from Dateline NBC. And a couple of other articles that came out online. But Jason Harper was a volleyball player. They called him Harp. He was a sports-loving guy, California, outdoorsy. And this is also a San Diego K-Stars. I was going to ask if if this is a a Seattle or a a San Diego. Cool, okay. Carlsbad. So we can always save it for later. It's it's, It's recent, but it's not super, super recent. So we can always save it for after ours. But it's just I wanted to do this one because I just heard the episode on it. It was fresh in my mind. And I knew that you'd be interested because, number one, the guy was a volleyball player and a volleyball coach. Uh, And it was a San Diego case. It was in Carlsbad. Yeah. So this guy played volleyball. He was super tall. He was like 6'4", 6'5". He played at UCLA. He was oh, an MVP shit. for his high school team. All around great guy, great friend. Very shy, though, around girls. His friends say he was an amazing volleyball player. Super, yeah, super awesome. he went to UCLA. Hell yeah. In order to play and be a starter at UCLA, this guy had to have kicked ass. 
So, and about four years after graduating from college in 1996, he met a girl. And this was a little bit more rare for him because he was super shy and did not, he had a way with volleyball and he was very athletic and sporty and outdoorsy, but he just was very, very shy around girls. So everyone was a little bit surprised when he actually did finally meet one. Her name was Julie. Wait, so, sorry, you said that he graduated in 2000, but then four years after he graduated in 96, he met her? Yes. He met her in 2000. He graduated in 1996. Oh, okay. Was I not clear on that? I apologize. No, yeah, that's fine. Graduated in 96, met this girl in 2000. Okay. He met her at a party. She pretty much zeroed in on him and kind of found him and like a little laser beam came up and sort of hit on him and talked to him and picked him out of all the other guys that were there. According to friends and family, she was pretty, she was smart, she was from a wealthy family, and she just looked like she had everything that he could possibly want in a girl. Mm-hmm. Harp, as his friends called him, Jason Harper, his friends called him Harp as a nickname, proposed to Julie three months after meeting her. It was kind Whoa. of a whirl- whirlwind romance. People were a little bit surprised, but then again, you know, some guys are just kind of like that. They're super shy, and then once they actually do meet that girl, it's like, that's the one, I'm done, I found her, I'm good. Yeah. So... The two then got married at the Hotel Del Coronado, and it was a great big happy party in the ballroom. They danced, and and for those of you who really don't know San Diego area well, the Hotel Del is one of the fanciest establishments that you can get married at in this area, with the exception of maybe La Costa Resort, but it's... A very, very old hotel that was built in 1888, and it's just a stunning, gorgeous place on Coronado Island, right on the beach. Just a beautiful venue for vacations, for surfing, for weddings, for whatever you want to do in that area. So that is where they had their wedding. And it's expensive as shit to even just stay there. Yes, it is pretty pricey. I think the yeah. cheapest I ever saw a room going for on like a weekday was like 350 bucks yeah. for one night. And it was like a non-ocean view room. Yeah. So. Yeah. A little bit pricey. Anyway, um, and maybe that's not New York pricey or San Francisco pricey, but, you know, for San Diego, that's that's a little pricey. And for as small as Coronado is. Yeah, too. absolutely. And also, the Dell's haunted, so fun little side note there. I believe it. Have you ever yeah. been there? Have you been inside the hotel? Yeah. I used to work on Coronado. We were just there last weekend doing a little yeah. bit of a run around there. Beautiful, yeah. beautiful, beautiful. In any case, uh, the family then moved to Carlsbad north of San Diego, where Jason signed on as a math teacher and a volleyball coach. And this was at Carlsbad High School. So he was a local guy coaching the volleyball. And for those of you who don't know or sort of understand Southern California culture, but volleyball and volleyball coaches and volleyball playing in high school and beyond is huge. It is one of the most important sports here and because of the proximity to the beach, like beach volleyball and volleyball is usually something that's part of every young person's life if they have any sort of athletic ability at all. Yeah, like volleyball and water polo are like the two biggest male sports in Southern California. Huge, huge, huge. And yeah. obviously because this gentleman had some good use of his hands and coordination and height, he was just a, a it was a God-given talent and he really used that to his full capacity. Jason was also a typical Southern California surfer and a beach guy. I, I, I think I misspoke earlier. He was about 6'6", 6'5", 6'6", so real, real okay. tall and about 240. 
Okay. Um, love to play poker, to surf, to play basketball and volleyball, and just super, super athletic all-around guy. Had a lot of friends. Everybody in his neighborhood knew him. He was very involved. Jason and Julie started a family not too long after that. They had Jake and Jackie, so it's a whole J thing going on in that family, right? So Jake and Julie came first, and they lived not far from the beach in a pretty close-knit community. Julie ran a local mother's group, and from all accounts, everyone that knew her said she was a pretty good mom. She was very involved. She participated. She was very friendly and organized. And then in 2011, they had their third child, Joshua. Okay. And Julie, at that point, sort of became withdrawn. She had some health issues and sort of did not enjoy socializing in the way that she had prior to the first two children being born. And this, to me, is not entirely uncommon. She could have had postpartum depression. She could have been suffering from a whole host of issues and From every indication in this case, she was having some health issues, including possible autoimmune conditions as well. Mm. Wow, okay. But Jason was still the same. Sorry. She was an at home mom. She was a stay at home parent, so she did not work at that time. And Jason was Mm -hmm. happy to support them doing all he needed to do. He was still involved and very hands on in the same way that he was throughout their marriage. And then comes August 2012. It was the 7th of August, and the neighbors began to come home in the morning at around 7.30, and they noticed that there was police in the driveway, and they had cordoned off the area with police tape. Oh. Evidently, they had found a body upstairs in the master bedroom, and Julie and the kids were missing. (gasps) Upon further inspection, police found Jason's body hidden under some blankets and other debris there was a bullet lodged in his chest. Whoa. Okay. Yes. So, at that point, the police do not know what is going on. They know that Julie is missing. They know that Jason is dead. And they are afraid that possibly somebody has abducted Julie and the children, that some harm has come to them. They suspect foul play. But they don't really know how to react at that point. There's no letter. There's no indication of... Anything other than Jason's death in that home at that time. Okay. However, the police do take pictures from the house of Julie and the license plate number on her car, and they blast it all over the news saying that they are looking for her. Was her car also missing? Yes. Okay. Then police get a phone call around 11 p.m. It is an attorney that has asked for a welfare check at Jason's house. The police determine that it is a ex-DA, now criminal defense attorney, Paul Finkst. Okay. He had called an internal extension at the police department and not 911. People that are researching this case believe that he did that because the internal extension was not recorded, whereas 911 <gasps> calls are recorded. Oh, shit. So he had made that call that initially led the police to find the body in the house because they would have had no way to know because the neighbors didn't hear gunshot or anything like that. So 11... No one suspected. Wait, so walk me through the timeline again. So they they found him at 7.30 a.m. and then 11 p.m. that night they got the phone call? No, they... 11 p.m. The sorry, 11 p.m. I believe it was the previous evening. They got the oh. call that they need to do a welfare check. They do the welfare check in the morning and find that Jason is dead. 
Okay. So the police, meanwhile, are talking to this attorney because he has called and, and spoken to the internal line. And he mm-hmm. says, don't worry. Everything is fine. Julie's not a victim. The kids are fine. But she was his newest client. And that he, Attorney Finkst, was arranging for the children's safe drop-off at a local children's hospital. And after that, Julie was going to surrender at her father's house. So when you say something like that, Julie is going to surrender, then immediately in your head, I think, okay, she killed him. I There's think no other like reason. She, yeah, she killed him, and there she's going to try like a self-defense. Right. So yeah. Julie didn't speak to anyone and refused to make a statement, and the attorney made all of the statements for her to say what had happened. And at that point, the police can't do anything but launch an investigation. They had a specialist interview the children, and everything seemed pretty ordinary. Around 8 to 9 a.m., the kids were watching cartoons, and they heard a loud thud. Okay. One neighbor said she saw Julie leaving the house around 9.05 a.m. that morning with the kids. She took them to a coffee shop and then to a local Playworks jumpy-type house. The kids played, and then that they found the body later. Okay. So clearly she was unconcerned, unfazed after she had killed her husband. Okay. Very, very interesting. Two days later, the medical examiner conducted the autopsy and recovered the bullet. It was a 38 caliber handgun bullet. They did find a, a gun in the home, but it was gif- different from the gun that had been used to kill Jason. Police believe that Julie had had an argument with Jason and pulled out the gun and shot him. A day and a half after the death is when Julie actually surrendered. They interviewed family and friends, but no one actually knew what the heck was going on. And Julie just seemed like so lackadaisical for someone who supposedly just killed her husband. She had taken the kids to play. She'd gone out for coffee. She was just super chill, like not in a way that you would think... You just killed somebody. How old are the kids? The children, I believe, were 9, 11, and, like, 5. So, like, very, okay. very young. Like, not young enough to where they wouldn't be able to say anything, but the children had no idea that anything was going on. Okay. So then we go into a little investigation for this case, and they start to interview Julie's friends, and one of them comes forward and says that a year earlier, Julie had sent a friend some envelopes for safekeeping. Inside that envelope were journals, writings, bank statements, and personal history items for Julie. Very, very interesting that it is a week, or not a week, a a year before the killing of Jason happened. Mm -hmm. Julie, in these writings, wrote that Jason was yelling at her a lot, and perhaps a divorce was the only solution She mentioned numerous times that the marriage was not happy, that Jason kept to himself, and was very physically and mentally abusive toward her. Surprise, surprise. We have a self-defense coming up here. Jason, on the other hand, did not indicate any of this to family or friends that he would possibly have shared it with under normal circumstances. So no one around Jason knew that anything was wrong. But people did know 
that the marriage between Jason and Julie was sort of winding down and arrangements were being made for a divorce, but Jason kept it very low-key. Like, he did not indicate that there was anything but an amicable divorce coming down the pike for this couple. In fact, Jason's parents had bought a home near their home in Carlsbad with room for Jason and the kids to come stay once the divorce was finalized, and Julie appeared to be getting ready for a divorce, too. But... Five days before Jason's death, she also made some very unusual financial transactions. In fact, this was the same week as the death. She took about $10,000 in cash out of an account in her daughter's name, and she wrote two $4,500 checks to herself from a credit card in Jason's name. So this is about $20,000 in cash that she has acquired in the days leading up to Jason's death. And this is extremely suspicious to police. They're preparing to charge her, obviously, Mm -hmm. in this instance, but that all these things are starting to fall into place as more and more suspicion is growing behind Julie. Police then get a search warrant for Julie's father's house, where Julie took the kids after the killing. Now, this home was about 30 miles away from Jason and Julie's house, But initially on the first search, they did not find anything. They did find other guns, but not the one that killed Jason. But they're super suspicious. And the more they look into this, the more they're starting to think something is not adding up here. So they get an additional search warrant to search Julie's father's house eight days later. And at that point, they find something new. In the garage, in an attic, they find a blue backpack. Then it's there now, but it was not there during the first search of the house with the initial search warrant. So it must have been hidden in between the searches by the police. When they open up the backpack, they find Julie Harper's wallet, credit cards, IDs, passport, and a different gun than the one she used to kill Jason, presumably as well as Jason's last will and testament, his cell phone with the battery out, and the call and text history had been cleared from that phone. So what would you think if you found that? That she was going to run. Yeah, it's a getaway bag. It's definitely a getaway bag that she had premeditated this in some way, shape, or form, because how else would you have all that stuff together in one spot? Well, it's interesting that she had the will, because... In order to get anything from, like, life insurance, you would have to submit that, which would then lead people to your location. Right. So, like, why? That's weird. And she refuses to talk. Right. So, however, in San Diego and in this particular area, the law is pretty clear that it only takes a minute or two of planning to qualify for first-degree murder as premeditated. Mm-hmm. It does not take weeks, months, or years of planning. It only takes a minute or two to prove premeditation. But the police then go ahead and charge Julie with first-degree murder related to the finding of the backpack and all of the other circumstances surrounding this case. Julie pleads not guilty. And, oh, I forgot to tell you, there's $39,000 in the backpack, too. Oh. <laughs> Whoops, forgot yeah, that that's critical a, that's detail. Yeah, detail. <laughs> so Julie's father says that he found the backpack and used it to pay her attorney. That I don't know where it came from, I just found it, and I and thought po- the money was in there to pay for the attorney, so I used it to pay for her. 
does he often conduct um, business in cash? I don't think so. (laughs) So Julie's father testified, but only after he'd been granted immunity, when he was previously asked to testify, he pleaded the fifth, which nothing looks more suspicious than pleading the fucking fifth when somebody tries to interview about a crime. Yeah. So the bail is set in this case at $2 million, and Julie's family pays it without kind of batting an eye. Right, yeah. Julie is released, and she moves back into her house. This was the on house Badger... where Jason died? Yeah. This house is on Badger Lane in Carlsbad, which I looked up the address, and it is, like, a super familiar area that I have been to many, many, many times. I'm gonna look it up. Yeah. So... The neighbors are absolutely shocked and horrified at that point because she would just be like chilling like nothing happened. And she would come out and chat with the neighbors like everything was cool. And she was like, hey, you know, we're going to catch up and go out together when all of this is over. And I'll explain everything to you guys someday. Mm. And the neighbors are just like super freaked out because it's like, really? This is insane because it's pretty clear that you killed this guy and you're not denying that you killed this guy and you want us to just treat you like nothing happened. Yeah. So fast forward a little bit of time here to September 2014 and Julie's case finally goes to trial. But the DA never got to talk to her for one minute. And it became obvious to him in looking at the evidence when investigating this, that Julie had been deteriorating over the course of time. Her marriage was a disaster. Her health was going down the shithole. Her finances were terrible. And they also believe that she had been abusing prescriptions for her autoimmune disease. So again, this case initiating in September, 2014 was two years after the death of Jason. They also point to the extreme mess in her bedroom which looked like a hoarder lived there yikes so initially when they found jason they found him under a blanket with all kinds of other crap like heaped and piled over him that just looked like a hoarder lived in that house yeah now part of the issue that comes forward when the police are investigating this case is that the bullet had entered jason through a side rear angle okay so essentially he was shot in the back yeah. And they narrow the time of death down from 8 to 9 a.m. in the morning. While the kids were watching cartoons, and she had gone to mm. La Costa Coffee Roasting, which I think is still there, too. Yeah, I mean, this wasn't that far, that long ago. I also, I looked up Badger Lane. It's near the Palomar Airport and east of Legoland, if you are yeah, familiar with the Carlsbad area. A super nice neighborhood, yeah. a lot of families, like, very well kept, and just, like, you would never think something like this would happen there. So the police were also interested that she went to this coffee shop, like, 40 minutes after the presumed death of her husband, and at no point during this morning of errands and coffee and play dates for the kids did she call 911. Super callous, it appears she was perfectly normal after killing her husband. But Julie takes the witness stand in her own defense, which... That's a shocking move. Yeah, a lot of defense attorneys will not let their clients take the stand because there is a lot of opportunity to stumble over something and pretty much give yourself up. Well, and you open yourself to cross-examination. And for somebody who's not spoken to the police or the district attorney at all, that's a really interesting choice. Right. 
Well, surprise, surprise, Julie claims she shot Jason in self-defense. Yeah. Right? Isn't that always how it goes? Yeah. So she's going to do the battered wife thing. She's going to claim the battered wife. She says that in private, Jason was angry and abusive, and she had taken secret recordings of Jason. Here is one of the recordings. I don't want to enable your horrible money ways and your poor credit score and everything else. I don't want to enable that. It's horrible. Yeah, our cool bitch. Figure it out. Can't help it if you're too dumb to do it. Too lazy. Well, you know, at least I have more words in my vocabulary than you do. Seems like the B-I-T-C-H is the only word that you can use. That's right. Right now, that is darn right. That's what you are. Like, I'm not going to let you do this anymore, Julie. You're lazy. This, I'm done. I'm not dealing with it. I mean, it's not like super, it's just like a man who's frustrated and like kind of mm-hmm. over the situation. But mm-hmm. it, in no way does it indicate that she had been, like, physically or emotionally or mentally abused, I thought. So it's like in an my argument. Yeah, it's an argument uh-huh. that they're having. And he gets a little bit, like, tough love with her. And he's like, you know, you're lazy. That's, yeah. that's it. And I don't want to deal with this anymore. Okay. She claims that he got physical. That he was 6'6", he's this big, huge guy and very, very, like, intimidating, that they lived in separate rooms by then, and she claimed that he raped her sometimes, up to 30 times that he raped her, and everyone around her is like, there's no fucking way. No one believes anything she's saying, because she doesn't sound genuine, first of all, and second of all, she stashed the gun and claimed that it was to keep it preserved as evidence for the police. But she would never tell him where it was. She's a very calculating mind. Like her first yes. call, instead of calling the police after she shoots her husband, which we're all like agreeing that she shot her husband. Like, right, like that's not in contention, right? In the back, no less. Yeah. And her first call is not to 911, but to her lawyer. Well, I think she probably called her dad first and was like, that's dad, fair, I, yeah. I fucking did this. And then he and was then like, he we have to get an attorney. Yeah, that's my guess. Right. Um, But she just, from all indications by the neighbors, the coffee shop people, people that she ran into that morning, she was super chill. Like, nothing had happened. And there was no evidence at all in any way, shape, or form that this man had abused her. There were no 911 calls. There were no restraining orders against him. There were no court documents. There were no hospital records of any sort of abuse. There were no... Indications from friends or family that she had confided in them and shared any of this, and she claimed it was because she was embarrassed, which can be the case. Right? Are we sure but it's she highly shot unlikely. him, or did her dad shoot him? I don't know. I think she shot him. Okay. Um, on the day of the murder, allegedly he had accused her of hiding his computer, and then flew into a rage and was yelling at her. She says he grabbed her and yanked her top off, claims that he was pulling her to the bed, and she managed to kind of get away and find where her gun was hidden under her pillow. She grabbed the gun, and when he came at her, she crossed her arms and doesn't really remember anything that happened after that, although she says she thinks she shot him. Why was her gun hidden under her pillow? I don't know. Like, that's just sad as if that's a normal thing where everybody keeps their guns. Yeah, it... it, her whole story just seems so like bizarrely far-fetched. And I'm going to play another clip right here. And this is Julie's statement about when she shot Jason in self-defense. And again, it just sounds 
So fucking bizarre. Slamming me up against the wall, face first. And what were you saying? I said, stop, stop. What are you doing? Stop. He was, you know, using some curse words and, um, God, I'm so sick of this and, you know, where's my computer? His face was all red and he was just, you know, his nose stretched up and he, his eyes squinting and he just gave this look of absolute rage and hate, but this was, I don't know, this, this was bad. What did he attempt to do to that? He grabbed me and began yanking my top off. I started pushing back and somehow managed to sort of wiggle my way free, pulling away as quickly as I could, moved from there across the room to my bed. What did you do when you got to the bed? I grabbed my gun from under my pillow. He was coming towards me with his arms raised and he said, I'm going to kill you, you bitch. And I was shaking and I was holding on to my gun tightly. Next thing I knew, I um, felt felt my hand jerk and heard a loud noise. And he was still like coming forward at me. And then all of a sudden, he froze completely. And just like a tree in the forest just fell forward at me. Now that you hear that, it's like you can see why no one believed her. Like the way her story is, it's not smooth. It's sort of staggered and presented in a way that it just seems like she's making everything up as she goes. Okay. She claims that she didn't want to shoot him. She only wanted to scare him and to make him stop bullying her or abusing her and prevent him from raping her. Uh But that is clearly not the case or not truthful because she shot him in the back. Right. They even recreated the scene in court so that the jury could see what angle she shot him at and what actually went down. But Julie was smart, obviously, and she seemed to be manipulating the courtroom on the stand for three days. She played it really, really well. And she managed to cry at all the right times. And really, when the attorney starts, the, the prosecuting attorney starts questioning her, she breaks down. And of course, the jury falls for it. Hook, line, and sinker. And when they're asked to come back with a verdict, they are hopelessly deadlocked. Okay. So, 
First degree murder charge, not guilty, not premeditated, no pre-planning. Second degree, hopelessly deadlocked, declared a hung jury. This is a mistrial. Yeah. So jury, excuse me, Julie goes back to her house on Badger Lane yet again. Because she's like, hey, I'm fucking free. Yeah. So because they found her not guilty of first degree murder, does that mean she cannot be charged with first degree murder again? Correct. They can't take a, okay. they can't take a bite at that one again. Okay. Now, the second degree verdict was the one they were deadlocked on. So, gotcha. they okay. cannot prosecute Ju- Julie again under the first degree because that would be double jeopardy. But they right. can okay. re-prosecute her under the second degree murder charge. Gotcha. So Julie goes back to her house on Badger Lane. And the prosecutor is, like, thinking about what he wants to do in this because obviously he knows he can't get a second bite of that apple now that they've come back with a not guilty charge on the first degree murder, which included the premeditation. Because they just couldn't Mm -hmm. justify her premeditation was something that was, like, evident to them 100% beyond a reasonable doubt that she had premeditated this. Yeah. In the meantime. they're not even really clear on what happened. No. Because she hadn't told anybody. Just here it is. And it didn't make any fucking sense to anyone. So they file the charges again for the second degree murder. And they schedule a new trial for April 2015. Then. Dun dun dun. March 2015 rolls around. And guess what? Julie. suicide? Is seven months pregnant. Whoa. I'm going to have a baby. And the prosecution believes that she did it intentionally to interfere with the trial. A little Diane Downs. Right? But this was in vitro fertilization. So this was not an accident. She went and deliberately did this. So they give her an additional five months to take care of the baby. They delay the trial. And a little girl is born. April 29th, 2015. There's no father listed on the birth certificate. Like, clearly Julie is like got a plan for this and when they ask her why she did it she's like well you know i have so much love to give and i just felt like i needed you know an outlet for it or something like that which is like fucking crazy and she's walking this baby in a carriage through the neighborhood and everyone is just like losing their shit right so september 5th 2015 rolls around and this is when the new trial is scheduled and they get all the witnesses together and they get everyone together and they start doing this yet again. And in this one, they were very, very clear to interview all the witnesses and specifically make it very clear that there was no sign of physical or mental abuse on Julie at any point. Okay. Despite the fact that her journals had pointed to the claims she made that he had raped her and et cetera, et cetera, they interviewed a shit ton of witnesses and made sure that each and every one of them said, no, she never gave us any indication that this happened. Okay. She also admits she never called the police. Dun, dun, dun. And I'm going to play a little clip from that here as well, which is just like insane. Now, have you ever called the police on Jason for any of these incidents? Oh, I was very embarrassed. I was very embarrassed that he was doing it. I didn't want... I didn't want my family to know. I didn't want my neighbors to know. I didn't want my friends to know. Manipulation or the awful truth. This then leads us to the verdict. October 8th, 2015. 
This time around, they find her guilty of second-degree murder, and she is sentenced to 40 years to life. Wow. She says, oh my god, I don't believe it. I can't believe it. My diary interviews showed everything. I'm so shocked. And you're just like, really, bitch? Really? Like, it's so disgenuine. It's, like, disgusting. Yeah. And from her prison cell, she conducts an interview and says, oh yeah, I'm starting a charity for domestic violence victims. Oh, boy. Okay. And then when they asked her why she got pregnant, she was like, oh, I wanted to give and share all the love I have. (laughs) You're just like... Oh, I can't even. This woman is giving everyone a bad name. Um, Her three children with Jason are now with Jason's family, and the little girl is being raised by her father. Okay. Her father repeated that he believed she had been abused and that the verdict was unjust, and he, when invited to talk to the media on camera, he declined all interviews and was just like, I believe in my daughter. I stand by her 100%. Yeah. So... Julie wanted a new trial, though, because she said this was a crime of passion about an argument over divorce and that. Oh, my God, it's just so crazy that she buried the gun, quote unquote, to preserve evidence for the police department. I told you that earlier. She like claims that she doesn't know where she buried it. She buried it to preserve it for evidence, but she doesn't know where she buried it. And so they can't ever find it. Like, somehow she thought that was going to, like, make it so that it would be harder to prosecute her on this case. Then why does she tell anybody that? I don't like, know. I have no idea. It's just the stupidest there's thing. There's so like many her, things that you're just like, why are you smart, making these but decisions? Like, some of it just seems like the stupidest thing you've ever heard. Okay, so there was an update October 24th, 2018. Julie sought to reduce her sentence. She was initially given 15 years to life with a 25-year enhancement tacked on for a, quote, gun enhancement. So with respect to sentencing in the state of California, you get the typical sentence. The statutory guideline sets out how much you can give for each thing. Okay. Now, when you commit a crime with a gun or with kidnapping or with some various other types of things, it's called an enhancement, and they can tack on extra time to the sentence for that enhancement. Okay. In this instance, a gun enhancement can tack on up to 25 years additional time onto a prison sentence when committing a crime. So they did that with Julie, and that's how they got the 40 gotcha. years okay. for her. Right? So a new state law passed around that time. Back in 2018, which gives judges discretion to add the 25-year enhancement. So it's not required. Prior to that law, it had been required to add the 25 years if someone had the commission of a crime with a gun. Okay. Was it retroactive? So it was not. Okay. It was mandatory when she was initially sentenced, but you can request a new trial for I gotcha. sort of a clarification or a re-review of the facts at that point. So 2018, the Fort, the Fourth District Court of Appeals heard the petition from Julie to send her case back to resentencing to remove the gun enhancement. Mm-hmm. So that is essentially what could happen if you were sentenced before that time period when it was mandatory and not sort of allowed to be added. You could have your case remanded back to the trial court for resentencing and they can determine at that point whether it is within the judge's discretion to add that or not. Okay. So when she initially went through, he had to add it. And now she's saying, I want you to look at this again. Because I don't think you should have added this. Gotcha. Okay. 
The judge considered all the facts in this case, including the fact that there was no 911 call and that Julie had buried the gun that she used to murder her husband, which has still never been found to this day. Okay. And he reaffirms that 40-year sentence. Gotcha. Before she's eligible for parole. Everyone, including her kids, believe she should serve the full sentence and no reduction was allowed. Like, even her kids were like, bitch, you guilty. Wow. Right? Um, This new law that was supposedly um, referred to in this case was passed January 1st, 2018 as Senate Bill 620, Section 1385, gives discretion to the judges to strike firearms enhancement during sentencing. It's not mandatory as it previously was. And so obviously the same judge who heard the initial case was the one that ruled on it again. And he was like, Hey, I'm upholding this Mm -hmm. because you are a fucking danger to society. He called her quote, a danger to society. Yeah. It's crazy. Like the burying of the gun thing is baffling. I don't understand that either. It it seems crazy. Like either bury the gun because you want to get rid of the evidence or use self-defense as your justification and turn over the gun. But, like, to say that you're burying the gun because you want to preserve it is just baffling. Why would you, like, even tell anybody where the gun is if you I buried it? That's just so confusing. So, during this appeal, she also argued that discrimination happened during this trial. That the prosecutor had discriminated against her for remanding four male jurors. And making sure that it was mostly female jurors, because evidently the females didn't like her as much. During the first trial, all the men were in the jury and they believed her self-defense story. And then this time they made sure they struck the males and that it was only females. But isn't like that the attorneys that strike the jurors? Like it's ultimately the judge, but... You can claim that you're discriminated against if they strike certain types of people from the jury based on sex. And she claimed that they did that. That's weird. Very, very strange case. She is currently serving out her time in a Southern California prison. I'm not sure exactly which one she's at. Maybe, um, I don't know what the Southern California ones here are in San Diego. Isn't there just one women's prison in, in uh, California? Um, which one is that? I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> I think, like, other than death row, I think it was just one woman's prison. Yeah. Um... It's some craziness. So I kind of want to cover off on one more topic before we close the show up for today. And this has been a hot button case, and I'm kind of curious what your take is on this. And that is the case of the um, college admissions scam. So here we go. This has been in the news a lot lately. And there was just another article about a parenting book author getting prison time for the U S college admissions scam. And this came October 23rd, 2019 on Reuters. So a marketing executive who authored a parenting advice book was sentenced on Wednesday to three weeks in prison for taking part in the U S college admissions, cheating and fraud scheme in order to help her son gain an unfair advantage. The irony. So this woman, 51 years old, is a single mom. She received less than the six-month prison term that federal prosecutors had sought after she admitted to paying $50,000 to have a corrupt test taker secretly take the ACT college entrance exam on her son's behalf. So he did not get his answers corrected like many of the other people. Somebody actually took the exam for him. So the district judge rejected a request by her lawyers to sentence her to probation after noting other wealthy parents had received prison time for their roles in the scheme. 
So they ordered her as well to pay a $40,000 fine, and she is among 52 people charged with participating in a scheme in which wealthy parents conspired with a California college admissions consultant to use bribery and other forms of fraud to secure the admission of their children to top schools. This gentleman, the consultant, pleaded guilty in March to charges that he sort of got this whole circle together and helped people cheat on college entrance exams, as well as helped bribe coaches to present clients as fake athletic recruits. Uh-huh. 35 parents have been charged since, including Desperate Housewives star Felicity Huffman, who is serving a 14-day prison term currently, and Lori Laughlin, who is fighting the charges. Laughlin. Laughlin. Um, prosecutors said Buckingham, the founder of a successful marketing firm in California, paid $50,000 to have this gentleman take the entrance exam for her to inflate the score. So this is craziness. What do you think of this case? Obviously, some people have gotten some jail time for it, including this one, this most current woman, Buckingham. What, what do you think of all this? Honestly, it's hard for me to care about this. Like, I I mean, this is, like, the cliche, trite thing to say, but, like, this really isn't that different from wealthy people making a large donation to a school and then their kid suddenly gets in when they don't have the academic merit. This is something that has been going on for generations. Um, You have legacies that get into, like, Harvard and Yale and, you know, so on because their families make large donations. But... It's, I mean, this is just like a more underhanded way to do it. That's kind of like the blue blood way to do it is you donate a building or you donate a scholarship or whatever. I, I mean, it, the unfortunate thing is it takes away from the people who are academically qualified to go to these schools. And I'm assuming because you said California, I'm assuming you're talking about USC, um, yeah. which is a private school, which is a very expensive school. Um, and they have high academic standards to for admissions. So it takes away from the people that are actually working their asses off and that actually are need-based to get a good education at USC and all of these other schools where this has happened. But it's hard yeah. for me to give a shit. Like, I, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's stupid. Like, I just, I just don't, I don't care. Like, this is stupid. They're breaking the law. They should get jail. Whether or not, you know, you agree that the jail sentences are too strong to light what you know whatever i just it's it's stupid this whole thing is just dumb and i wish that we put more of a um, like we put more value into actually earning an education than being able to buy one but that's not the country we live in i mean i can't change right. that like this isn't going to change that the scandal isn't going to change that it's not as if these kids from wealthy families are actually going to start earning their own way um People that do this are people that have an entitlement, you know, a sense of entitlement about things. They think they should just be handed things without actually earning their way. And then you have people that actually work really hard and now don't get into these schools because their spots are being taken by these these other, you know, trust fund kids. And it's just, it's not new. It's just this is the new way that they have found to go about it. And this new um, consultant or, you know, whomever these, you know, they're just finding new ways to do this. And it, it wouldn't even be surprising if this has been something that's been going on for years and this is the first time we're hearing about it. It's definitely yeah. not surprising that it's happening in the athletic field. That's That's been going on forever. Fake you know? athletes? Um, I don't know necessarily about fake athletes, but I do know that academic qualifications for highly recruited athletes are not as strong, not as high. 
as they are for yeah, the well, standard they student. actually had these two daughters, Lori Laughlin, Laughlin, Laughlin. Why am I having such a hard time pronouncing her name? Lori Laughlin had her two daughters recruited on the crew team and signed up as student athletes, even though they didn't row a fucking day in their life or have anything to do with crew. Yeah, I know. That's I mean, what they're talking about. Uh, I know. So essentially, I, two spots for two excellent athletes got taken by these two bitches who were like had nothing to do with crew. Well, yeah, but, I, but what I'm saying is I don't think that that's new. I think that's probably happened. It's, I mean, I think that that's probably been going on. I, I don't think any of this is new. I think that it's just, for whatever reason, we're finding out about it now. But I don't think any of this is, like, so a new idea. do you idea. think these kids knew what was going on, or do you think they're completely oblivious? I think some because of them knew. I, th- I, I have a hard time believing that you wouldn't know that you got into this fucking school when you know you're a dumbass. You know you're not bright. You know your grades suck, and yet you got into this top-tier school. Like, come on. You couldn't be that dumb. I, yeah, I think that there, I think there certainly are kids that did know about it, but I also do think there are kids that didn't. And then Lori Lachlan's children. It's, it's still You know Lachlan. you're not on the fucking crew team. It's never you been know Lachlan. You're, Lori whatever. Lori L. <laughs> you know you're not on the fucking crew team. Oh, yeah, no, they definitely knew. I just don't feel any need to pronounce her name correctly because, like, I have so little respect for her. That's complete <laughs> bullshit. Being a student athlete myself, being one of those kids that struggled and worked my ass off to get through school and had to pay for it myself, it pisses me off when people like this do shit like this. And I think they should have thrown the book at them. I mean, I agree. It's not like I'm okay with it, but I just, it's hard for me to care because it's not going to, nothing's going to change in the way we go about admitting kids to college. It's not going to change. You know, we're going to we're going to strap people down with student loans they can never hope to pay off because it we I mean, because we can't afford to pay for school. And we know that getting an education is the only way to survive in this world without having to work 16 jobs and go work. Well, that's what we tell people. I don't know that that's necessarily true anymore because the bachelor's degree is worth fucking a high five to charms blow pop at this point. Right. Well, it depends on what you get your degree in. I'm not saying that uh, I'm talking about just continued education in general, because you can choose to do any number of things in continued education after high school. And right. And that that's true as well. You can still go to high school, graduate and, and do very well for yourself. You can be an Instagram influencer, make millions of dollars, start your own business. You know, I don't think Bill what was it. Bill Gates was the one that didn't graduate from college. Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg. They all dropped out of Harvard. Nonetheless. The vast majority of people that go on to succeed in this world do so because they got some for, some form of continued education at some point or another. Yeah. So if you want to have a skilled labor position and not be flipping hamburgers or doing hard manual labor, you need some sort of education after high school. For the most part. Yeah, I mean, I just... I don't know. I just... It's, it's dumb. It's... This whole thing is dumb, but it's not new, and I'm not surprised by it, I guess, is kind of my whole thing. Like, we're not going to change the way we do anything about it. When I heard this case come out, my sincere and genuine hope was that this would blow the lid off this bullshit that's been happening and help make the process better. Nope. Now, is this the most important thing in news today? No. Does this take precedence over cases like Cupcake McKinney? Hell no. But is it a problem that needs to be addressed and dealt with? Yes, it is. Yeah. I just, but I don't think we will. Maybe. We can hope someday. Yeah. If we ever have kids, that our kids might get to reap the benefits of all that. I tell you what, I'm super all set with that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway.
Anyway, I think we're going to go ahead and wrap the episode. <laughs> wrap the episode up for the day. And this is the point where we say gold. Uh, blah. Dude, what, what's going on? I don't know. My tongue just doesn't. It's got a mind of its own tonight. <laughs> This is the point in the show where we say goodbye for now, so long, farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you guys have any questions, comments, or suggestions, or you have some deep-seated desire to talk about something specifically, we are more than happy to chat with you. Send us an email. We're at thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. We love your emails. Um, what else you got for us, Dars? Social media? Um, we are at the BFD Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and we are you know posting pictures and updates to our news stories and everything there, so make sure you give us a follow. Yeah, and please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild stuff. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your best life. Bye! Bye, guys. <laughs>